Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bellow. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Nathan Connolly. Mr. President, Mrs. Carter. On New Year's Eve, 1977, the Shah of Iran hosted a banquet for the President of the United States. This reception is particularly auspicious since it takes place on the eve of 1978. Since the distinguished guest tonight is such a person of goodwill and achievement, naturally we consider it as a most excellent omen. But 1977 was not going to be a good year for the Shah. Seeds of discontent were increasingly visible in Iran. Street demonstrations against the Shah had begun to crop up the previous fall, but he had discounted them. Now, when President Jimmy Carter stood up to toast his counterpart, it was clear that he didn't think much of those protests either. Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled areas of the world. This is a great tribute to you, Your Majesty, and to the respect and the admiration and love which your people give to you. President Carter was in Tehran to discuss a deal that had been in the works for years, the sale of nuclear processing equipment to Iran. The agreement had been initiated by the previous president, Gerald Ford. It had been pushed by Ford's chief of staff, a young Donald Rumsfeld, as well as by Rumsfeld's successor, a guy named Dick Cheney. Both argued that the Shah should be taken at his word when he said his oil-rich country needed a renewable energy source for the future. Of course, not everybody in Washington trusted the Shah. There were a number of people who were very concerned that the Shah secretly wanted to build a nuclear weapon and that, in fact, we were giving him the capability of doing that. This is Gary Sick. He was a member of the National Security Council and accompanied Carter on his trip in 1977. Sick affirms that those voices of caution in the U.S. were pretty much ignored. The Shah was a staunch ally of the United States, and American companies stood to make billions of dollars from the nuclear deal. As for the possibility that these enrichment facilities could one day fall into the wrong hands, or that the Shah might be overthrown, Six says nobody gave that much thought. There really was not any great concern. The Shah was not an old man. Uh, He had lots of experience. He seemed to be in complete control of everything. He had a powerful army. He had a very sinister and effective security service. He had everything that you could imagine going for him. And there really was no speculation about the Shah falling. The Iran nuclear deal never happened. Remember those street protests? They were the beginning of Iran's Islamic revolution. A year later, the Shah of Iran fled his country. Ayatollah Khomeini became the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran in December 1979. 
Within a few years, Iran's new leaders had secretly jump-started their nation's nuclear processing capabilities. When this became known, they claimed they were doing it for peaceful purposes. And Iran's religious leaders have maintained that position ever since. Gary Sick doesn't buy it, but he's also quick to point out that when it comes to nuclear enrichment, Iran's stance predates the Islamic Revolution. The policies they're pursuing basically are no different at all than what the Shah was pursuing. In the Shah's case, I think what he wanted was for everybody to know that he could go for a nuclear weapon if he needed to. And I would say that the present government in Iran has the same view in the back of their mind. They want everybody to know that Iran is a real power, that if you push them around, they are going to have the capacity to respond to you. Today, North Korea looms large as America's most dangerous nuclear enemy. North Korea state media announced overnight that Kim Jong-un plans to hold off from launching missiles at Guam, at least for now. The United States has great strength and patience. But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Kim Jong-un saying he takes President Trump's threats personally, so he has been rattled, but he's now rattling the world with a new threat of his own, of a nuclear test explosion over the Pacific. This week, we're revisiting a backstory episode that looks at some of the other countries and groups who have been America's enemy. We'll discuss the origins of the current U.S.-Korean crisis, and we'll hear stories about efforts to fight Nazis during World War II on the pages of U.S. comic books. Plus, we'll hear from a former KGB spy who worked undercover in the U.S. during the Cold War. But first, let's go back to a frigid Boston night in January 1774. Things were about to get ugly for a man named John Malcolm because he was suddenly an enemy. John Malcolm was perhaps the only person in all of revolutionary North America to be tarred and feathered twice. This is historian Ben Irvin. He says that tarring and feathering was meant, above all, to humiliate the victim. In John Malcolm's case, an angry crowd paraded his befeathered body throughout the city. But at every stop, they forced him to apologize to the crowd, and they forced him to drink tea until he vomited. To make matters worse, the mob had ripped off his clothes before they tarred and feathered him. And remember, it was January in Boston. His uh, skin uh, was frostbitten, and it allegedly, this is gruesome, it allegedly pulled uh, off as he attempted to scrub the tar from his body afterwards. Malcolm was targeted mostly because he was a British customs agent. His job was to enforce the Crown's unpopular tax policies. Royal officials, like Malcolm, were popular targets for mob violence when the American Revolution started. But as it wore on, Irvin says, patriots went after other types of people as well. As the nature of the resistance movement changes, the nature of tarring and feathering changes as well. In the mid-1770s, we begin to see groups 
of individuals applying tar and feathers to their internal enemies. Um, they, the, one of the unique things about the American Revolution was that it was a civil war. It was an internal war. Yes. There were no yes. clear ethnic or racial or uh, even necessarily religious boundaries between uh, patriots and loyalists. And so uh, within the former colonies, it was very important to the patriots to distinguish their friends from their foes. And tarring mm-hmm. and feathering was one of the ways that they did that. In dramatic fashion. Dramatic fashion, a spectacular fashion, if you will. And so um, in Savannah in 1775, the Sons of Liberty tarred and feathered a man named John Hopkins, who was allegedly drinking offensive toasts. Uh, We might imagine that he drank to the king's health, uh, and that was enough to earn him tar and feathers. Um, Wow. In Charleston, South Carolina, in August 1775, a crowd tarred and feathered a man named George Walker for cursing and abusing America and all her committee men. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite episodes in Kinderhook, New York, in September 1775, the young women who had gathered for a patriotic quilting bee tarred and feathered a boy who came amongst them and began to speak against Congress. Uh, these young girls, they didn't have access to tar and feathers, so instead they used molasses and the tops of flags that grew in the meadows. <laughs> so when did tarring and feathering peak? Well, tarring and feathering during the revolutionary period will peak in the mid-1770s, uh, after The Continental Congress urges people to boycott British goods in 1774, but before perhaps the Declaration of Independence, when there are real questions about allegiance and loyalty and national identity, uh, Mm -hmm. it will it will peter out as the war continues, as loyalists uh, throughout British North America continue to flee for safety, uh, as energies became redirected to the war effort, we'll see fewer episodes of tarring and feathering. But tarring and feathering persists in American history uh, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Wait a second. Hold on. You mean tarring and feathering goes past the Revolutionary War? Absolutely. Tarring and feathering is stitched through every major social crisis in U.S. history. We see tarring and feathering in the 19th century uh, repeatedly. Temperance advocates were tarred and feathered by their uh, opponents. Um, Abolitionists were tarred and feathered, as were defenders of slavery. In the Jim Crow era, African Americans were tarred and feathered. Civil rights activists were tarred and feathered. During World War I, German sympathizers were tarred and feathered. Throughout this whole period, persons who were suspected or accused of violating sexual taboos or domestic relations were tarred and feathered. So uh, prostitutes, adulterers, cohabitators. um, So this expands well beyond what we might call political ideology or, or even political interest to all kinds of social concerns and social mores. Absolutely, it does. I would argue, though, that it never is entirely divorced from the association of meanings that it acquires during the revolutionary period. To impose the tar and feathers is to lay claim to 
ultra-American status. We, the crowd, who tars and feathers are the true right. Americans. And that's why right. it's so important to cart these people through town and say, this is the behavior that we denounce. These are the individuals that we denounce. Uh, and for that reason, it, it's it's really, really uh, useful for crowds that want to um, assert their moral superiority and to lay claim to a particular set of American ideals. Ben Irvin is a historian at Indiana University, Bloomington, and author of Clothed in Robes of Sovereignty, The Continental Congress and the People Out of Doors. Earlier, we heard from Gary Sick. He served on the U.S. National Security Council under Presidents Ford, Carter, and Reagan. You know, as we look at the uh, contemporary landscape and all the insults being thrown back and forth between President Trump and leader of North Korea. You dotard. (laughs) uh, It it brings back personal memories. My dad served in Korea before I was born when he was a teenager, and he didn't really talk about it much. He had his uniform around the house. But when he Mm -hmm. died about 20 years ago in the obituary, my mom and I sort of had a discussion about it. I wanted to say that he was a veteran of the Korean War, but my mom insisted, no, he was a veteran of the Korean conflict. Mm. And it strikes me that's kind of an unresolved storyline in American history up to today. Maybe you can help me understand why we would call that the Korean conflict when so many people died and why it's still echoing in today. Well, Ed, the United States never did formally declare war. That was my mother's position. Exactly. Mm. And in fact... The U.S. Congress never did declare war. Uh, You could say that it was very much a war because we joined with all of these allies in the United Nations uh, to fight this. And as you point out, millions of people died. That sounds very warlike to me. Here's the other reason. We didn't have a peace treaty. And in fact, we have a truce or an armistice, but there has been no formal settlement, which is why this situation flares up, turning from us ignoring it mm. to headline news as it is today. Right. I mean, I think there's probably a, a, even a cultural question here, apart from the technicalities of whether or not the Congress officially declared war, which is that, you know, to what extent does the Korean War even occupy part of our identity as a country? I mean, we can easily talk about the war against fascism as being an important victory for America. We oftentimes can invoke Vietnam as an hour of the country that was not as pristine as some would like, right? Um, But Korea definitely falls in that breach. And I think it's, it's actually a challenge for many Americans now to even know what makes North Korea our enemy. I mean, it's pretty bizarre to think about, you know, 1989 being declared as the formal end of the Cold War with the falling of the Berlin Wall. And yet it feels like we're still fighting a version of the Cold War, right? We're still talking about, you know, the possibility of, you know, nuclear annihilation. We're still looking at a foreign power we don't really know very well. And frankly, Russia is in the news every week anyway. So it has all the downsides of war. And all the downsides of a conflict, right? We have all the loss, but with none of the resolution. That's right. So is this sort of this wound from the past that's never had a chance to heal? 
we don't really have a takeaway lesson from the Korean War in spite of, you know, the five million some people who were killed in that conflict, um, you know, some 40,000 Americans. You know, there wasn't a lesson. It never became a parable. I, I think you really have to look at sets of alliances on the ground. You have to look at mm. the collapse of the Soviet Union. We say the end of the Cold War. We really mean the end of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. The People's Republic of China is still very much in place. Right. And they want a buffer state between those American troops in South Korea and their own nation. And that's very understandable. Yeah, um, because the troops have been there ever since my father came home. That, that's exactly right. right. On the other hand, some of our strongest allies and our own buffer against the influence of the People's Republic of China are South Korea itself, Taiwan, and Japan. Mm. And our troops are there to assure those countries that we are strong with them. And even a president like Donald Trump, who has questioned those traditional alliances, has been at pains in the last week or two to underscore this absolute ironclad commitment to these countries. So we do have to look at this web of alliances and enemies when we try to understand why it is that Vietnam has been unified, Germany has been unified, but we still have this dividing line with troops standing eyeball to eyeball, might as well be the Brandenburg Gate in the Korean Peninsula. You know, it's interesting that Americans don't really identify the North Korean people as our enemy, but we certainly do identify their leaders as our enemy. Why this continuing animosity? Well, again, I think we have to really be honest about the fact that we're living in a post-atomic age, in a nuclear age, and the way that you demonstrate that you have heft you know, on, on the geopolitical stage is by being able to demonstrate that you have a certain kind of nuclear capacity, right? I mean, the reason that Saddam Hussein didn't want to let in weapons inspectors was maybe, you know, Iraq might have been a nuclear power in order to get a certain measure of respect. North Korea is similarly going to make its claims for a certain kind of global importance almost exclusively based on the fact that it has nuclear capability. And I think there's a history lesson here, if we can imagine the North Koreans' understanding of recent history. Mm. And that is that um, Iraq never fully developed its capacity to develop a bomb and deliver it. Look what happened to Mm. them. Mm. Saddam Hussein uh, is no longer with us. The United States invaded several times. Muammar Gaddafi in Libya never Mm -hmm. fully developed a bomb and a delivery system. And I think it's not unreasonable to look at the leaders in North Korea and imagine that they went to school from this history lesson and said, we're going to get there come hell or high water. Uh, Now, you can also look at a deeper history and say that the North Koreans learned their lesson in that war that Ed's father fought in. Right. They uh, had their economy wiped out, millions of people lost. They are looking at these nuclear weapons as the ultimate protection against American invasion. And that's actually not so irrational if you look at developments in recent history. All these countries have been engaging in this arms race since the late 1940s, and it's now creating a, a really wide range of, you know, dangerous possibilities that are, you know, 
oftentimes tethered to personalities like, you know, the president of North Korea or the president of the United States or whichever president we don't yet see coming on the world stage. And it might well be time for a different kind of diplomatic response that takes the nuclear option off the table for every country. So, Ed, we've left your father out of this. What would he make of the situation today? I think he saw it as a tremendous waste. I mm-hmm. think he admired the army and sometimes said he wished he'd stayed in, but he never had a good word to say about our effort in Korea. And, you know, it was a highly politicized late 60s in Vietnam. He could have used that as an opportunity to say, I saw what the communists look like up close. He would never play that card. I think he had a sense that he was lucky to get home alive. Mm-hmm. When the United States entered World War II in 1941, Franklin Roosevelt's administration made sure that everyone knew plenty about America's enemies. The Office of War Information printed posters and churned out film reels to promote a united front against fascism. But White House officials were also mindful of how our fascist foes used propaganda. They wanted to make sure that American state-sanctioned propaganda did not look like propaganda coming out of fascist countries like Germany or Japan or Italy. This is historian Paul Hirsch. It was called the strategy of truth. And what Roosevelt and his administration wanted was to focus on dry facts and figures. And so as a result, the Office of War Information really focused on factual, dry, almost clinical propaganda. But some in the administration thought that this wasn't enough. In order to sidestep this strategy of truth, they turned to one of the most popular media of the early 1940s, comic books. They realized this is the perfect camouflage for propaganda. All of the ads for cheap toys and weight-bulking kits and all these things in comic books, and they looked at the violence and the sexuality and said to themselves, there is no way anyone would ever look at a comic book and think that the U.S. government had anything to do with this. In the early 1940s, comics sold something like a billion copies a year. And it wasn't just to kids. More than 40% of American servicemen read comic books, too. So the Roosevelt administration created an organization called the Writers War Board. It hired novelists and journalists to produce lots of war-related popular culture, including comic books. The Writers War Board also set policy for the industry. The board was supposed to be independent. It was ostensibly separate from the government, but that wasn't really the case. It got funding and support from the Office of War Information. But because it looked independent, it was able to say things that government propagandists couldn't. American comics were an ideal vehicle for propaganda because they had dramatic plots, extreme violence, and a demonized enemy. The Writers' War Board had no problem portraying Japanese characters as inhuman, But as for Germans, well, at first the board drew a distinction. It wanted Americans to see Nazis as the enemy, not the German people. At the beginning of the war, there is a difference between the way Germans and Nazis were portrayed in comic books. Germans, that is, non-members of the Nazi party, were very often presented as sympathetic characters, as people very different than the tyrannical Nazis who were ruling them. 
Hearst says that this is most apparent in an issue of the comic book War Heroes. The protagonist, an American soldier, is captured by a German U-boat and then tortured by the Nazi captain. While all of this is happening, the German sailors, who are explicitly not Nazis, who are on this U-boat, sympathize with the American sailor. They secretly help him behind the back of the Nazi officer. They tend to his wounds. And then ultimately, they help him escape. But these subtle distinctions between Nazis and Germans vanished as the war intensified. In 1944, comic book publishers started getting new directives from the Writers' War Board that instructed them to demonize all Germans. The board condemns all Germans as members of a degenerate nation whose people throughout the centuries have always been willing to follow their military leaders into endless, bloody, but futile warfare. They actually give comic book publishers a template on how to present Germans and Nazis. Soon the pages of comic books had no sympathetic German characters. Members of the Writers' War Board made sure of that. One of the starkest examples was produced by DC Comics, the home of Batman and Superman. The comic was called This Is Our Enemy. It featured familiar superheroes like Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and The Flash. These superheroes taught Americans, well, a comic book version of German history. Some of the scenes were pretty gruesome. They see a German gazing over a battlefield full of injured and dying soldiers, and he gloats. He says, this is what we Germans have always been taught. And then he sort of laughs at all of these uh, young men dying on the battlefield. And the implication is that there's something inherent in the German mind that causes them to be violent. As the writer's board saw it, the stakes in this war were too high for any subtlety in U.S. propaganda. The war is dragging. The United States and its allies invade Italy, and they're having a very tough time of it. The Soviet Union is losing enormous amounts of men and property on the Eastern Front. And what the propagandists at the war board realize is that if they are going to build support for this long-term war, they have to explain it to Americans in very stark terms as a war of annihilation. Now, it's not like the Writers' War Board didn't have misgivings about representing an entire people as evil. In fact, they set out to juxtapose the Nazis' racial intolerance with comics praising racial unity in America, in spite of the fact that there was Jim Crow segregation or Japanese internment. Hirsch says this reflected a contradiction at the heart of messaging in comic books. The U.S. propagandists at the Writers' War Board are asking Americans to fight hatred and fascism by themselves hating uh, on the basis of race and ethnicity. And the way this is put across is by explaining that uh, it's a unique American kind of hatred that's acceptable in the context of a war, that Americans hate the Germans because the Germans are a threat to, to the world. At the end of the war, the Writers' War Board closed up shop, and propaganda comics like This Is Our Enemy were mostly forgotten, which was just as well. After the war, the U.S. spent billions of dollars rebuilding the economies and its relationships with former enemies, Germany and Japan. We had help in that story from historian Paul Hirsch. He's a resident fellow at the Institute for Historical Studies at the University of Texas. 
In the mid-19th century, many Americans imagined that there were millions of foreign enemies right here at home. These enemies had the power to undermine our democracy. Who were they? Catholics. Catholics were ill-prepared to handle the responsibilities of living in a democracy. That is to say, they were ill-prepared to handle the responsibilities of freedom, is what the belief system was in the 19th century. This is Mara Farrelly, who's written about the history of Catholicism in the United States. She says that many Protestants in the 19th century believed that Catholics simply weren't independent-minded enough to be good Americans. The thought was that they were supposed to always do whatever it was that their priests told them to do, that they were a bit like children in some respect. And so giving children the right to vote or the right to run for office could be dangerous because they don't know how to think for themselves. In the 1840s, the Catholic population in cities like Boston and Philadelphia surged with new immigrants from Ireland. Rumors flew that these new arrivals were ordered to the United States by the Pope himself, and his plan was to overrun the electorate with voters loyal to him. Then he could bring America under his control. This anti-Catholic sentiment often turned violent over seemingly small issues. In 1844, riots broke out in Philadelphia over, of all things, footnotes. The Catholic Bible had them to guide readers. The Protestant King James Bible did not. Some Protestants took the annotated Bible as another sign that Catholics were incapable of free thought. When Catholic leaders tried to introduce their version of the Bible to the city's schools, many residents saw this as evidence of an enemy invasion. Newspaper editors started spreading rumors that what Catholics were really trying to do was remove the Bible entirely from the public schools. So did they begin to portray these Catholics as basically enemies of good good American schoolchildren? Absolutely, that this was a part of the Pope's plan. He had sent Catholics to the United States in the first place to undermine democracy, and that involved an awful lot of different things. But one of the things it involved was getting the Bibles out of the public schools because the thought was that Protestant morality is the best way to cultivate the kind of virtue that democratic citizens need. And so if Catholics are trying to remove the Protestant Bible from the public schools, which they weren't, but again, this is how it was perceived, if they're trying to remove it, they're really threatening the success of democracy. How many people really believe that this was a real threat, that behind this Bible issue was really a foreign enemy, really a pope pulling the strings over from Italy? Oh, it was it was pervasive. I mean, I can't necessarily give you numbers, but what I can tell you is that this threat was pervasive and it was respected and respectable. In fact, in Philadelphia, there was a newspaper editor by the name of Louis Levin. And, um, you know, it's, it might be a little bit inaccurate to say this, but at least as far as Philadelphia is concerned, he really was kind of the the Rush Limbaugh or the Mike Savage of his day. <laughs> he ran a newspaper that was called The Daily Sun, and he editorialized frequently about the growing Catholic threat in the city of Philadelphia. 
And he published an editorial in which he fretted that our government is changing to a monarchy, he told his readers. Um, And then he went on to say, when his holiness, the Pope, will have a king ready sprinkled with holy water to mount the throne in the name of Catholic liberty. This is what he predicted would be happening in Philadelphia as a consequence of all of the Catholic immigrants who were moving into the city. Got it. So, which it was not the case, but that was the fear. So, Right. Rhetoric and reality. Right. So, So did folks act on that fear? They acted quite violently. Uh, They burned houses. They burned churches. At one point, the priest of one of the churches that was threatened became so concerned that he started stockpiling armaments in the church, which then just only, you know, sort of exacerbated the situation. Sure. Uh, it's it's not really clear the numbers. It's believed that at least 15 people were killed, but it may have been more than that. Uh, more than 50 people were injured, and at least $150,000 in property damage was done. And just to put that in perspective, at this point in time in Philadelphia, average household income was about $900 a year. Maura, I know that there was violence against Catholics in the 19th century, and it even bled into the 20th century, and surely there's prejudice against Catholics even today. But what I really want to know is, when did Catholics stop being seen as enemies of the state? Yeah, you know, I um, until recently, I was sort of under the impression that there was no more anti-Catholicism in the United States. But I did recently uh, publish an article online that was about the history of anti-Catholicism. And woo, let me tell you, some of the trolls that have posted comments to that article have alerted me to the fact that there is there is still some element of anti-Catholicism in the United States today. But, you know, yes. I called them— uh, You're talking about some guy sitting in his underwear in, in, right. in, in, in the basement right. there. I mean, you're not associating that with respectable opinion anymore. Not at all. But, you know, that was respectable opinion in the United States, really up through the election of John F. Kennedy and a little bit beyond— Uh, It's really only been within the last 50 or 60 years or so, I would say, that anti-Catholicism has not become a respectable fear. But in spite of that, Maura, there are those who see uh, Muslims today, those who practice the Islamic religion, uh, as being um, controlled or dominated uh, by foreign religiously motivated uh, fanatics. Do you think America needs to have enemies like, and you can fill in the blank, Uh, we talked about Catholics today, but it could have been the Mormons. Uh, It could have been atheistic communists in the 1950s. It was atheistic communists. So what would you say that Americans have a need to uh, have an enemy of the state who is controlled by some kind of power from outside of America? Well, I guess I I would throw it back to you and I'd say, when you tell somebody that you're an American, when you say, I am an American, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we have a common ethnicity, a common race, a common religion. Uh, we do have a common history, but I think um, American identity is at its core just an idea. 
right? That's what that's what we root ourselves in is we are an idea. And is and that idea independence? Freedom. Yeah, uh-huh. I was going to say freedom. I'll take independence, okay. right? Free, freedom defined as independence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do think that we need to consciously, self-consciously define ourselves as a nation in a way that the residents of many other nations do not have to and never have had to. And there is a really quick and easy and dirty way to define yourself, right? And that's to point to what you are not and to say, we are not that. But what about what we've become? What about the history of these Catholics seen as the enemy by many in the 19th century turning into some of the best Americans. Why don't we remember that when we're so worried about control of folks who think a little bit differently or appear to think a little bit differently? Well, I, maybe we could say we have the freedom to do that because new enemies have moved in, right? We, we really can't let go of our old enemy until we have a new enemy. And so it is not without reason that that sort of um, era of good feeling that I talked about is developing in the last 50 years or so happened when it did. You know, it it happened really at the some of the most salient parts of the Cold War when we were more concerned about communists in Russia than we were about Catholics in the United States. Say what you will about Catholics, at least they believe in God. <laughs> Maura Farrelly is a professor of American studies at Brandeis University. She's the author of Papist Patriots, The Making of an American Catholic Identity. We're going to shift away from imagined enemies to one's that have walked among us for centuries, spies. My name is Oleg Kaligan. I'm a former Soviet intelligence officer. That was my main job, to recruit Americans to work for the Soviet Union. Oleg Kaligan says he knew he wanted to be a spy as early as his teenage years. When he graduated high school in 1953, he joined the KGB. The KGB, like the CIA, took advantage of the cultural exchange programs established between the Eisenhower and Khrushchev administrations at the time. When Culligan landed in New York City in 1958, the Soviet intelligence agency told Culligan to get acquainted with the city and the American people. I was not supposed to recruit anyone. That was in, I was in training uh, for the Soviet uh, intelligence system, but I just accidentally almost recruited a man, an American, who had access to classified information. This man I bumped into uh, on the campus of Columbia University, and uh, we struck a conversation, and he said in the first minutes of our conversation that he hates Khrushchev because he betrayed the cause of communism. Khrushchev was the leader of the Soviet Union at the time. 
I said, come on, listen, you, well, why don't we go to cafeteria and, well, talk about what's happening and, uh, well. So I told him, if you want to, uh, Russia become, or Soviet Union become a stronger, more powerful nation, why don't you share your knowledge uh, or experience with the Soviets and that will be your contribution to the better life of the Soviet people. It turned out that the man worked for a major American military contractor and had access to classified information about advanced weaponry. The KGB thought Culligan might have an FBI agent on his hands, but they gave him the go-ahead for another meeting. He brought some samples and documents classified at that time, and that was the beginning of my career. Culligan's job after the first success got even more interesting. He recruited other informants as he traveled around the country posing as a journalist for Radio Moscow. By the 1970s, Culligan had become a big shot. He helped run the KGB's Washington office, and he was the youngest general in KGB history. He eventually returned to Moscow as head of foreign counterintelligence. Until 2001. I was summoned by the prosecutor of the United States to come down to Florida to, as a witness at the trial of Colonel Trofimov the man who was a Soviet source for many years. Culligan testified against a retired American colonel and fellow Soviet spy. Now, you might assume that a decade after the Soviet system fell apart, there wouldn't be much danger of retribution. Unfortunately for Culligan, Russia had a new leader. At some point, one of my former subordinates by name Vladimir Putin called me once publicly traitor. I said, how could you call me a traitor without due legal process? Aren't you a graduate of the law school of Leningrad University? I am ashamed if you, (laughs) people like you. Culligan and Putin threw barbs back and forth in the press. Culligan even accused the new president of having committed war crimes in Chechnya in the mid-1990s. Culligan soon realized that he would not return to Russia. And a few months later, the Russian uh, military tribunal charged me officially with treason. And so, after a life spent trying to get Americans to betray their own country, Culligan was labeled a traitor in his own homeland. Yet, even in his spying days, Culligan says he didn't quite see the U.S. as an enemy. What he enjoyed most about the work wasn't ideological, he says. It was the mechanics of the job. It was traveling around the United States. It was chatting up strangers. It was building relationships. I mean, meeting hundreds of people, just trying to select those who may be eventually of use to you and, I mean, your service. That's a great job, I tell you. (laughs) I liked it. (laughs) Culligan told us that the warm welcome he received wherever he went made his intelligence work easy. Ultimately, it was that same warmth and trust that made it possible for Culligan to call America his home. Oleg Culligan teaches at the Center for Counterintelligence and Security Studies in Alexandria, Virginia. That's going to do it for today but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your burning history questions. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter 
at Backstory Radio. And feel free, as always, to review the new show in the iTunes Store. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishash, Robin Blue, Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Hoddington Bear, and Jazar. And thanks, as always, to the Johns Hopkins University Studio in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Vallow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.